Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Happy New Year to you. Thank you so much for joining us here on the show on this special New Year's, or I should say New Year's Day special. Uh, show's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you visit the website and give them a call, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. Visit lifeinnaples.net to find out more. We also have a copy of the uh, uh, latest publication on the uh, website as well, lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including William Yateman. He is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. We'll be talking about Congress and the COVID bill. We'll visit with Byron Donalds, our newly elected representative. Boy, he's st- stepping right into the cauldron there uh, with uh, going into the House of Representatives and big things going on on January the 6th. John Trudell is an author. Uh, he's a former communications and intelligence guy, a civilian working with the armed forces. And he's used that it to write a terrific books. He's got written seven books. We're going to be talking about Broken Oath. Uh, so we've got a great guest lined up for today's show. As I mentioned, January 1st, it is on Unknown's Day in 45 B.C. New Year's Day was celebrated on uh, January 1st for the first time in history as the Julian calendar took effect. Soon after becoming a Roman dictator, Julius Caesar decided that the traditional Roman calendar was in dire need of reform. Introduced around the 7th century B.C., the Roman calendar attempted to follow the lunar cycle but frequently fell out of phase with the seasons and had to be corrected. In addition, the uh, Pontifex, uh, the Roman body uh, charged with overseeing the calendar, often abused its authority by adding days to extend political terms or interfere with elections. <laughs> oh my goodness, can you imagine? In designing his new calendar, Caesar enlisted the aid of uh, Sisachines, an Alexandrian astronomer who advised him to do away with the lunar cycle entirely and follow the solar year, as did the Egyptians. The year was calculated to be 365 and one quarter days, and Caesar added 67 days to 46 BC, making BC uh, 45 BC begin on January the 1st, rather in March. He also decided that he, for every four years, a day be added in February, thus theoretically keeping his calendar from falling out of step. That interesting. Shortly after Caesar was assassinated in 44 BC, Mark Anthony continued the name of the month. Uh, for July, Quintilius to Julius, and to honor him later, the month Sextilius was renamed Augustus or August after his successor. Celebration of New Year's Day in, in January fell out of practice during the Middle Ages, and even those who strictly adhered to the Julian calendar did not observe the New Year's Day exactly on January the 1st. The reason for the latter was that Caesar and Sisogenes failed to calculate the correct value for the sole year as 365 Point two four two one nine nine days, not three hundred and sixty-five and a quarter days. Thus, an eleven-minute-a-year error added seven days by the year one thousand and ten days by the mid-fifteenth century. The Church became aware of the problem, and in the fifteen seventies, uh, Pope Gregory the Thirteenth commissioned Jesuit astronomer uh, Christopher Clavius to come up with a new calendar. In 1582, the Gregorian calendar was implemented, omitting 10 days from that year and establishing the new rule that only one of every four centennial years should be a leap year. Since then, people around the world have gathered en masse on January the 1st to celebrate the precise arrival of the new year. And of course, that would happen on uh, in New York City, watching the ball drop. I guess that happened last night. I didn't stay up late enough to see it, but uh, there were no crowds, not, at, uh, not there to observe. Uh, New Year's Eve and the dawning of a new day and a new year, 2021. Let's hope it'll be a better year. Well, while Democrat politicians have advocated for prisoners and healthy people of color to be vaccinated first, Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis chose to stand up for the most vulnerable population affected by the coronavirus pandemic. During a press conference in Delray Beach at Kings Point Golf Club, the governor reiterated Wednesday morning the importance of residents age 65 and older to be prioritized for the COVID-19 vaccine lineup. Now, DeSantis emphasized that senior citizens have been at most at risk for COVID. It's impacted their lives greater, and we have a responsibility to stand by those folks who 
who've done so much to make our state and country what it is today. Prior to the briefing, DeSantis was asked by the press if he was willing to receive a dose of COVID-19 vaccine. He says, I'm willing to take it, but I'm not a priority. They're the priority, he spoke of the elderly, not noting that himself as age 45. He went on to argue that the people under the age bracket should not be first in line. So when it's my turn, I'll take it. But this is what I want. This is who I want to be vaccinated. I want my parents. I want my grandparents to be able to get it. He explained. Granted, I'm not an I'm an elected official, but whoop de doo. He said. (laughs) At the end of the day, let's focus on where the risk is. And the governor fired back at reporters. His response evoked an applause. As of last week, 25 out of 50 states have committed to focus on racial or ethnic communities. What a joke. When its leaders decided who should receive the novel coronavirus vaccine first. So glad we live in Florida and we have, especially this time of year, and have uh, Ron DeSantis as our governor. Well, we reported 230 new cases of COVID-19 and zero additional deaths on Thursday. Uh, They're not reporting uh, the the, uh, hospitalizations. I wonder why they should be reporting that because, remember, uh, leveling the curve, that's really all that counted, was uh, not overwhelming the healthcare system. Uh, The Department of Health uh, in Cuyahoga County said Wednesday they received 3,500 doses of uh, Moderna. The county said it would be administering doses on January the 3rd by appointment scheduled through Eventbrite. Now, I went to Eventbrite, and I tried to find out how to to, uh, make an appointment. Not that I want one. I don't. But I wanted to be able to share that with you, and I couldn't. So uh, eventually, I'm sure we'll all get the information of how to Get online and make an appointment if you want to get uh, vaccinated. Right now, nursing homes and hospitals are receiving direct shipments of vaccines for their residents and frontline healthcare workers. Researchers at the renowned Cleveland Clinic say that melatonin, a dietary supplement that is used as a sleep aid for people suffering from insomnia, could be employed to help prevent or treat COVID-19. Isn't that interesting? Melatonin was associated with a nearly 30% reduction in the likelihood of contracting the virus, the scientists said in research published. Uh, so uh, add melatonin to your supplements uh, list and uh, could reduce your chance of 30% of getting uh, COVID-19. About 19 million people in the U.S. have been, had been confirmed in cases of COVID-19, but confirmed cases may be the tip of the iceberg. Although estimates vary, the Centers for Disease Control, that's right, CDC, believes that about eight people have been infected for each one person with a documented case. If we multiply 19 million known cases by eight, it turns out to be 152 million people. That's a big part of the population. Yet the proportion of people who have been infected at that rate of new cases varies significantly by state to state. So uh, it may be that the herd immunity is setting in here in Florida. You know, if you take melatonin, maybe you don't even need the vaccine. I'm not rushing to take it, uh, but uh, believe me, I'm not a doctor. I'm not giving anybody health advice. President Trump flew back to Washington, D.C. ahead of the, uh, at the head of the week, and he hopes he, he could change the outcome of the 2020 election. The President and First Lady Melania Trump departed on Air Force One from Palm Beach International Airport earlier than expected, according to three people familiar with his plans. So, uh... Trump was expected to appear at the annual New Year's Eve party, but he didn't show up. He went off instead. And the certification process on January the 6th is a big deal. The news comes at a day after Missouri Republican Senator Josh Hawley said he would object to the election of certification. Trump also recently shared a tweet calling for Vice President Pence to obstruct the election certification process. Tens of thousands of Trump supporters are expected to be in Washington, D.C. on January 6th for the protests that Trump said would be absolutely incredible. And then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, during a private call with GOP uh, leaders in the upper chamber, said he his vote on January 6th to certify Joe Biden's election victory will be the most consequ- consequential I have ever cast. And I suppose that pr- probably speaks for everybody. Uh, in Congress, because even these newly elected officials like Byron Donalds going to Congress, uh, meeting with all the senators, presided by Mike Pence, and all the members of the House, and then they're going to have this discussion, and then Josh Hawley from the Senate. I understand there's 140 uh, representatives who are going to object to the results that 
been submitted. So it's going to go into a debate uh, in, in separate houses, and they're going to come back and have a vote on what's going to happen. This is truly a consequential, this is a secure, clearly a, a, a constitutional crisis. And uh, I really think uh, President Trump, he just, he does not give up. I think he's, he's going to actually, I would surprise me if he turned up in the, in the chamber to, to address the uh, Senate and the House about the circumstances and what happened in the election, because uh, there's no quit in Donald Trump. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. Uh, the website is lifeinnaples.net. Okay, coming up, we're going to visit with William Yateman, research fellow at the Cato Institute. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York style theater at its very best and building a brand new performing arts center in downtown Naples. Get tickets now. You can visit the website golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit our newly elected Congressman Byron Donalds. Right now, we have with us William Yateman. He is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. William, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, and Happy New Year, Bob. Happy New Year to you, William. Thank you so much. So, um, tell us about the Cato Institute. You bet. We're a think tank here in Washington, D.C., and we're dedicated to advancing the ideals of a free society at every level of government. Cato.org is the website. C-A-T-O dot com. Or dot org, I should say. So, uh, William, uh, finally, the with this COVID bill kind of struggled through, and there's all kinds of debate. I just want to get your thoughts about that, what, what happened. Well, I mean, we, we covered, I'll just note, uh, as a topical matter, President Trump signed the bill into law before that Monday deadline that would have led to a government shutdown. We discussed that possibility last Friday. Right. And overall, with the bill, um, sort of along the lines of, of what I said a week ago, 
Um, on the one hand, this getting COVID relief to people who have been forced out of their jobs by these government lockdowns, there's a, um, there's a very strong case to be made for that. On the other hand, the, the process by which this bill came to bear, um, I took great issue with that. I mean, there was, instead of Congress being able to focus on the singular problem of COVID, we saw them uh, use these procedural sleights of hand such that many members could fill this bill full of pork and, um, in, in particular, the stimulus bill, the, sorry, the spending bill that was attached to the common stimulus um, became a vehicle for all sorts of shenanigans um, uh, among many members um, of, of congressional leadership in particular. So it was, uh, I was, uh, was somewhat pleased with the result as, as far as it was focused on, on people suffering from the fallout of these lockdowns, um, but I very much bemoaned the process whereby we saw um, the sort of the inability of Congress to hunker down and focus on a particular problem and instead, you know, using this quote-unquote must-pass legislation to fill it full of pork. Yeah, no question. I mean, uh, $50,000 to the Kennedy Center, uh, millions to go to different countries to build border fences, uh, uh, how many millions to Pakistan for uh, some sort of sexual training? <laughs> I don't know. There's also so much junk in there, and I guess... Uh, uh, the congressman can't help themselves. It's, it's the analogy of making sausage uh, is uh, so true. It, it, and I'll say this: it, there's, I don't necessarily mind um, the the horse trading. I do think that these sort of deals ultimately can engender the goodwill that leads to cross aisle policy and politics, and, mm -hmm. and I'm supportive of that. What I object to is that it had to take place on with this bill regarding COVID. I mean, it, it just struck me as, as almost unseemly that um, this sort of log rolling, you know, must have been associated with what was this clear and pressing concern um, that I thought Congress could have dealt with on its own. Yeah. Um, so it was, yes, it was very much, a, a, I, I didn't think um, it, it should have been part and parcel of a, of a bill that was focused on people suffering from the fallout of the COVID lockdown. You know, I'm so happy you made that point because, uh, you know, that's one of the ways that you can actually get some horse trading done and, and have people reach across the aisle and, and uh, develop relationships without it. Uh, people are pretty much locked into their own ideology and we refuse to negotiate. So uh, you're making a good point, although there's a lot of waste in this thing. So, so, but just which kind of brings to the point of the bigger picture of how Congress is performing uh, right now and the role that they're taking in course of uh, American history and contemporary politics. Yes, I'd like to draw your listeners' uh, attention to a column in the Washington Post from two weeks ago by George Will. Mm -hmm. um, and he took aim at the institutional weakness of our contemporary Congress. And, and I'm paraphrasing here, but this is very close to verbatim of, of his, the first paragraph of Will's column. He says, the, the 117th Congress will convene on January 3rd, period. It's not clear why. Um, and then he lists sort of all these, these, these core congressional functions and powers that have been outsourced to the executive branch, mm -hmm. um, from in, you know, regulating foreign Congress with other nations to... Um, uh, 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 you know, the spending power, this ability that President Trump um, to build his own, or to build this, the border wall, notwithstanding the fact that the Congress had, had negotiated hard with the president and shut down the government for months over that very particular spending. Um, these examples of sort of the executive getting its way with law-like mechanisms without um, the help or aid of Congress, and, and sort of how we're seeing more and more of this executive lawmaking in today's government, and will, rightfully so, in my opinion, um, took issue with sort of this Congress's contemporary um, reticence, if you will, to compete with the president. Yeah. And, and I do think there are dire liberty concerns. I mean, our founding fathers, the genius of our system, is these competing branches of power that prevent any one entity or institution from gaining the upper hand and um, concentrating authority in, 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 in one set of hands, um, in this case, the president. I mean, it was uh, the very definition of tyranny, James Madison wrote, um, is the concentration of power in, in one 
um, one branch. So the, the upshot is um, along the lines of, of what Will was arguing, um, and I hope you, you present this question to the incoming congressman, is what sort of steps does Congress want to take to get back into the game? Mm-hmm. Um, and Will actually endorsed the recommendations of the select panel of the select committee on modernization, this the bipartisan joint House-Senate committee whose mission purpose was to propose ideas for yeah. Congress to modernize itself. And first and foremost, the easiest one would be for Congress to simply invest in itself. Um, a startling fact, I throw this out to your listeners, because I think it encapsulates much that is wrong with our current allocation of, of government resources when it comes to the executive branch in Congress. The Environmental Protection Agency, so the EPA, mm-hmm. they employ 165 public relations professionals, so 165 total. Mm-hmm. In the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, so that's the Senate committee with jurisdiction overseeing all of the EPA, mm-hmm. and again, the EPA was a creation of Congress, a creation of statute. That Senate committee, it has 34 staffers. Um, the upshot is that the Senate committee tasked with overseeing the EPA has about one-fifth as many staffers in total as the EPA's public relations public relations shop. I mean, that is astounding to me. Yeah. Um, and it sort of speaks to this asymmetry of resources between the two branches, which is only accelerating um, this sort of unbalancing or, or yeah, indeed, the extent to which our separated powers have gone out of whack and are presently unbalanced, such that the president is towering over the Congress, you know, yeah, between but, the political but, branches of government. But, William, I'm, I'm just wondering, William, uh, it seems to me that Congress has conceded this power to the president by uh, what you said, for example, creating the EPA. Uh, all these uh, uh, alphabet agencies that have been created are, simp- are actually taking over the whole process of rulemaking and and really, I think, legislating as opposed to doing their role, which is to interpret and to uh, in- in- enforce the legislation that Congress is passing. So Congress has really conceded this. They could take that back in a minute if they wanted to. Yes, indeed. And that was, I'm sorry for my um, circuitous explanation. That was the ultimate point. All of these powers have been given away, delegated Mm -hmm. to the executive branch by Congress. And then um, uh, George Will and myself and Cato, among other um, entities, are sort of waiting for when Congress comes to its senses and starts clawing these powers back. Um, And it is hoped it would start with the next Congress. And, um, uh, you know, again, I do recommend that your listeners check out that Will column because he does enumerate a number of specific recommendations that Congress could take on, even at the margin. I mean, it does, it's not as though Congress has to snatch back all its powers in day one. Um, there are several common-sense mechanisms that I, that I hope would appeal to, you know, across the aisle to both parties, whereby Congress could sort of beef itself up and increase yeah. its own capacity relative to the executive branch. Well, so, William, I'm so happy that you brought these issues to to our attention. I genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Happy New Year to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy New Year, and thank you so much for having me, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting uh, our U.S. congressman, actually on January the 3rd, Byron Donalds. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the uh, Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Wait a minute, that was the wrong commercial break. I'm going to play this one instead. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the Intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. 
That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Offshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Thank you so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. And that's just one of the incredible initiatives that's been created by the Foundation for Government Accountability. In eight years, this organization has grown in an amazing way with over a $12 million budget right now, operating in over 30 states and having great influence on uh, this administration as well. So I hope you'll visit the website thefga.org thefga.org oh uh byron wasn't available i didn't get him but i'm going to move right now to the uh, uh, interview i recorded with john trudell who's the author of several novels seven novels actually his one of them his latest just came out broken oath death run from havana to uh <laughs> well you'll see this is a, a real story of international intrigue of course he uses his background uh, in uh, intelligence and communications, in the he was a civilian working with the uh, armed forces, and it's just such an interesting story. Uh, he lives in Oregon. Uh, he's a patriot, and I don't know how what it must be like living in Oregon. But nevertheless, uh, here's the interview that I recorded earlier a couple weeks ago. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. We have with us John Trudell. He is the author of several novels. His latest is Broken Oath: Death Run from Havana. John, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Thank you for having me. I was really looking forward to this. Sir. Well, I am indeed as well. I've read the book. It was really fascinating and interesting to me. didn't serve in the military myself, so I found myself breaking new terrain uh, with this read, but I found it very intriguing. Uh, it, it deals with a lot of things that almost splash on events today. We can talk a little bit about that, but why don't we start off by talking about your very interesting background. Yeah, it's actually stranger than you think. Uh, I was never in the military. Mm. <laughs> okay. It was a very strange time of my life. And um, I was uh, in college. I was working on my doctorate, and various things happened, and I wound up not getting the doctorate because I kept getting offers. I was a young engineer mm. and uh, working in high tech, and they really needed people like that. Um, technology was starting to become pretty significant. And so, anyway, long story short, um, I went to work instead, and I was working for defense contractors. And uh, I was kind of young and stupid, and I was the idiot civilian in the back of these airplanes, experimental systems, electronic intelligence birds, and then finally gunships flying the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And... uh, And I'd volunteer for things. <laughs> you know, I was high enough to get involved enough to get clearances. Uh, and they did. They, they basically protected me. The military guys, I have an awful lot of respect for them. And, but I, I never served. I want to make that clear. But I was close to it. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of my early history. Yeah. And uh, it kind of shaped my life after that. So uh-huh. I worked... Um, even going back before that, I was a young kid who 
Jersey, grew up pretty much impoverished by family. Both sides of it had been wealthy, but lost all their money for different reasons. So I started off picking blueberries at eight cents a pound and later on went to college and on scholarships, finding a grad school on a fellowship. And uh, I got all these jobs and people would pay me good money to learn things. Well, How you, does it get any better than that? No, it you doesn't. Well, it, it, it's so interesting to, uh, because the stories that you tell are death-defying. I mean, we have our our hero. It's really a battle of good versus evil in, in so many interesting ways. But our he- hero is Raven, and his uh, he turns out to be his very close squeeze. And I, I forget now if they got married. I guess they were on the process of that. But uh, she is a paranormal of sorts. She is able to see things into the future. Such an interesting pairing. But my goodness, they run into all kinds of death-defying situations. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> Broken Oath is my seventh novel. It's the fourth in the Raven series. And uh, Raven and Josie are... People have told me it's a real interesting pairing, a very unusual thing. And I took a um, psychic, a paranormal, um, <laughs> kind of a modern version of a witch. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, her heritage goes back to Celtic times. That's the backstory of the novel. Um, and she was a sensitive. She could see things across time and space, which is really woo-woo, okay? And then Raven is a hardcore paramilitary ops guy, and he winds up being assigned to protect her. Well, to protect her, he has to be close to her, and weapons freak her out. Violence freaks her out totally. But um, but she's a psychic and a sensitive, so she's a national resource that should be protected. Now, the weirdest thing about my novels, uh, particularly including the uh, Raven Josie pairing is it's true uh, you know I mean it's, it's fiction but the core of it is true mm. there actually were paranormals like that back during the Cold War and everything was compartmentalized so you'd hear these stories I mean, you have clearances but you also have a need to know <laughs> who needs to know that kind of crazy stuff yeah um, what, what they were doing is uh, was the Rhine Institute at Duke, and um, they were working. You know, the Cold War and Doctor Strangelove, the whole world was going to blow up. Very interested in nuclear defense. What do you do about it? What do you do satellite U2s and satellites have massive destruction, or if you can get us, we'll get you worse. Uh, but during that, they were doing all these kind of things, and they were actually doing research with psychic paranormal. So were the Russians. The Russians apparently were doing more. Mm. And you would hear these snippets and these little things. You'd be you'd be hanging around with, with people. Well, what about this? And you'd just hear bits and pieces and more and more and more. And, uh, huh. And so finally, some of this, um, the programs had ended mostly uh, as the Cold War ended. And some of the stories were coming out public. And uh, this this remote viewing thing uh, was quite credible. Several people wrote books about it who have done it. And there's even a, a movie up on um, Amazon Prime called Third Eye Spies that is written about these people. And they, they did phenomenal things. Their yeah. success rate was very, very low. But what they could do was stuff nobody else could do. The, the famous case <clears throat> was uh, nuclear submarines. And the uh, Russians were developing a new nuclear submarine, or we were afraid they were. And what do you do? None of the sources could find anything. So they went to the paranormals, and one paranormal says, yes, uh, actually there is such a submarine. It hasn't been built yet, but it'll be built in this shipyard, and there will be a, a canal built to take it down to the Black Sea, and that hasn't been built yet either. But on this date, that submarine will be coming down this this channel, and it's too shallow for it to sur- submerge. And they're like, well, yeah, right. This is like 18 months in the future. And mm. everybody, that's crazy. Well, they task a few satellites, and by God, <laughs> the submarine showed up, and they got a couple of pictures of yeah, it. That's so fascinating. It and it's just... Typhoon-class sub. And um, 
you know, and then nobody saw it again for another two years. So it was a big deal. It was, it was a nuclear sub with launch tubes. So, and, so uh, John, one of the things that's interesting to me is the, uh, uh, the uh, corruption on politicians, members of Congress and stuff. I mean, this almost rings true today in what we're seeing with this uh, possible payoffs for the uh, uh, Dominion software and so forth. But it, it, the story is built along around about an exchange of millions of dollars to uh, politicians. Uh, in uh, Mexico, I mean, it's it's just a fascinating story. Do you see true events happening today that uh, that are part of this or that uh, kind of inspired this? I absolutely do, and in fact, that's kind of the characteristic of my novels. My tagline is "Thrillers are fiction until it happens," mm -hmm. and uh, partially because of my background, I've got contacts. People tell me things, and. Um, and it's interesting. Uh, but yeah, the uh, current issue, um, I'm one of the few thriller guys that writes in that vein. Um, Vince Flynn, I thought, was great. His first novel was, uh, was uh, Term Limits, and it was about corruption in Washington. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, And it was a blockbuster novel, and he was a great writer. He died too early. But he kind of started that. And, um, you know, and my books are that way, too. Usually yeah. there's some enabling force. Uh, this Dominion software thing is interesting. Um, when I was doing the research for uh, Broken Oath, it's taken me quite a long time to get that book done. And one of the reasons, it was extremely hard to research. The uh, invasion route from Venezuela on up to uh, the U.S. border through Mexico is by far the most dangerous place in the world. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, ask for some stats. Go back a year and say, what part of the world or what country or region of the world had the most murders or let's narrow it down, say beheadings. Could you name a country or an area where it would have the most beheadings yeah. in, say, 2019? Well, my guess would be uh, Mexico. It is Mexico. Most yeah. people guess the Middle East. Okay, yeah. but it absolutely was Mexico. Well, basically, I know that because I read your book. <laughs> you read the book? Okay, you, my cover is blown. Yeah, I read the book, and that's real. Yeah. Uh, of the ten most dangerous cities in the world, at the time I wrote the book, um, Nine of them were in Mexico, and number three on the list, of course, was Caracas, Venezuela. Uh, Caracas is so hardcore, um, you know, it, it's a very, very dangerous place. Nobody can go there. Even yeah. people I know who do that kind of stuff don't, don't dare go there. It's a very dangerous place. And if you know the history of Venezuela... I'll get the dates, the exact dates wrong. But Venezuela, if you go back six or eight years, was a wonderful place. It had the best health care in this hemisphere. Yeah. It had the second highest standard of living in this hemisphere. And um, it was very free and very happy and extremely prosperous. They had all kinds of natural resources, gold and, you know, oil, a lot of oil. Yeah. Um, the third or so fourth life was good. Third or fourth wealthiest nation in the hemisphere, as I understand. Uh, I believe second. Second, yeah. I, I believe second after the U.S. Um, you know, it depends what dates you take. Okay? Sure, but, sure. But it was way up there. It had better health care and, and a standard living second only to the U.S. Well, of course, the um, socialists kind of moved in. And the interesting thing, which came out um, after my, uh, well, I, I don't specifically have it in the book, but that's this Dominion software. Mm -hmm. And um, essentially, the, uh, the nation of Venezuela was free and prosperous and very democratic, and they had a constitution and everything else. And then they had an election, and in the middle of the election, uh, the... Uh, <laughs> Voting system crashed. Oh my goodness! And when they woke up the next day, 
um, they wound up with Maduro, a former truck driver, as uh, and thug, as uh, their yeah. essentially dictator. And exactly. Downhill from there. Um, very, very nasty place. The um, the other thing that was kind of interesting, and and in fact, um, I'll have to look the book up now, but. For about the last two years, the embassy's been closed there ever since about the time Trump came into office. So you can't do research. But the even before then, it was the drug cartels and it was extremely violent thugs. What yeah. they're doing, they have these collectivos. And you take um, Cuba. Okay, well, Cuba... <laughs> almost did a very good job of, of almost bankrupting the old USSR because Cuba was <laughs> they wanted a presence in this hemisphere. So, so John, you know, I, I want to like be able to continue the conversation. Unfortunately, we need to move on, but you know, I want to just let our listeners know the name of the book is Broken Oath. Death Run from Havana, Broken Oath by John Trudell. That's T-R-U-D-E-L. I mean, it's a great read. I strongly encourage it. I look forward to reading some of the others that you've written as well, John. I really appreciate it. And uh, any special source for the book? Do you have a website? Yes, please. Uh, the best way to find information about all of my novels is my website, which is just my name, www.johntrudell.com. All right. J-O-H-N-T-R-U-D-E-L. And for the real stuff and some of the background research, I have a blog, which is mostly factual stuff and then some topical items. And that's just blog.johntrudell.com. All right. All of my books are available anywhere, paper books, e-books, Amazon, you know, Barnes & Noble. And um, they've all won awards, and I appreciate your interest, and I could talk about it forever, as you can tell. John, absolutely. I just genuinely appreciate the read and appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, that's a wrap here on the on the uh, interview that we had with John Trudell. I really enjoyed listening back to that because he's uh, it's got such a fascinating story. That's Broken Oath, Death from Havana. I've got right here in front of me another of his uh, novels, Raven's Run. That'll be the uh, next book that I read. I'm really looking forward to it. So I do highly recommend it. Okay, we're going to have more here on the uh, Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you or a family member suffer from chronic pain in your knees, hips, or shoulders? Joint pain can be a nagging and serious problem requiring expert and compassionate care. I know I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. Until 2006, I was suffering debilitating pain and deformity in my knees. I couldn't enjoy biking or golf or even sleep without chronic pain as a constant companion. Thanks to Dr. George Markovich and the professional staff at the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, my pain is gone, and I'm back to doing the activities I enjoy with no pain. I have a lifestyle I could only imagine prior to knee surgery and you can too call the institute for orthopedic surgery and sports medicine they will thoroughly evaluate your condition provide personalized state-of-the-art treatment and help you relieve your pain and get back to your active lifestyle at the institute for orthopedic surgery and sports medicine your care will be professionally managed through every phase of your recovery for an initial consultation call the institute for orthopedic surgery and sports medicine located off tammy amy trail in bonita springs at 482-5399 that's 482-5399 you listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-3889 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Well, 
Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. The website is golfshoreplayhouse.org. We have with us our new congressman, U.S. Congressman Byron Donalds, getting sworn in on January the 3rd. Byron, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Bob. How are you? Great. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Byron. I hope you and your family enjoyed the the day. Are you in Washington, D.C. yet? No, I'm actually in Naples, but I... I'm actually going to get on the road in a couple hours and start driving up. I have a lot of stuff I got to take up, you know, for the new office. Do you have a new home up there, a place to live? No, not yet. Um, in an Airbnb this week. Uh, probably going to take my time figuring that one out. All right. Well, uh, right now, just in my estimation, you're kind of stepping into the cauldron because it's not like business as usual in Congress. I know you've got a kind of truncated uh, schedule this year. Like I think there's 101 days that you'll be uh, in session, according to something I heard. But uh, nevertheless, the very beginning of it, January 6th is coming up, and that's the uh, counting the electoral uh, votes with uh, Mike Pence uh, presiding. Uh, what are your thoughts? I think what you're going to see is um, actually a legal process unfold in front of the American people that, frankly, nobody ever talks about. Uh, first of all, it's important for people to understand that Congress always certifies the Electoral College. Um, there have been challenges in the past. The most recent challenge, uh, I believe, was in 2005. There was a challenge brought by then-Democrat Senator Barbara Boxer and, I forget, the Democrat member of Congress. Um, and so there was a challenge and, and back in 2005. And then what happens when there's a challenge is that uh, the, the joint session is halted each each chamber uh, which goes back to their chamber, essentially. Essentially, the senators go to their their chambers in the Senate, and then there's a deliberation over the legitimacy of the challenge. Uh, there is debate, there's information and evidence given, and then the members in each body have a simple up or down vote on whether they want to uphold the challenge or not. That's the process. Um, I think you're going to see an extended challenge this year, um, well, in a couple of days, and the reason why is it's very clear that you have several states, most notably the Commonwealth of, of Pennsylvania, um, that violated state election law. Um, you, when in Pennsylvania, the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court, changed election law because they couldn't get it through the legislature. Um, in Minnesota, the Secretary of State changed election law, weakening signature requirements, um, doing doing um, the, the the large uh, mail-in uh, vote. Uh, distribution to all people in the registration list simply because they wanted to. Mm -hmm. um, it happened in California as well. And the funny thing is in California, Gavin Newsom uh, was cited by a federal judge saying that his actions were unconstitutional because Gavin Newsom unilaterally did a complete mail out of ballots to all registered voters in the state of California, which is a violation of California law. Mm -hmm. And so being a, you know, Bob, we've, I've been on your show for years. Your listeners are very familiar with me as somebody who has always stood on the side of the constitution. The one thing is clear that article two, uh, section one, paragraph two clearly states that election laws and the the how elections are governed are run by state legislatures, not by governors, not by secretaries of state, uh, not by the court system. Their job is to, in is to basically un to, to decide on the constitutionality of law and with respect to the court, and with respect to the secretaries of state or a governor, their job is to execute the laws on the books that are passed by the legislature. They don't have the right to change them, even using a pandemic as an excuse to do it. That's what happened in a lot of these states. Mm -hmm. That goes against the Constitution. It goes around state legislatures, and that's why the, the results should be challenged. So if the, if the results are challenged, I would imagine the results will, will be challenged in the six states, uh, or up to six states, which would, of course, include right. Arizona and right. others. What would happen if, in fact, Congress comes back and they, they want to nullify the electoral votes uh, for, for these uh, various states, uh, do that just reduce the number of, or can they actually endorse or change the vote over to, uh, for example, President Trump? Now, that's the part I honestly don't know. You mm -hmm. know, I think some people, most people think that if you go through that process and Congress says, you know what, based upon the evidence brought in the, in both chambers, yeah, this, you know, those electoral votes, those electoral votes will be invalidated. The other th key thing is, is that, you still have to get to 270. And since, you know, voting is, is, is suspended, the next question is, what's the next step? If you have if you have a situation where there are electoral college votes that are simply not certified by Congress, 
doesn't then default to the the process under the Constitution, where um, the state delegations in Congress and and the state delegations in the Senate essentially vote for who's going to be the president and the vice president with respect to the Senate. The Senate votes for vice president. The House votes for president. Um, I'm honestly, Bob, I don't know. And that's something that I'm still going through the rules right now. There's a lot of stuff that has to be done. But I think the most important thing for people to really understand and try to keep in mind is that, you know, we're a system of laws and procedure. We're not a system of, well, the media said it, so it's over. Um, and so, you know, I think that, you know, people want to just people. You know, people want to see a resolution to this. Quite frankly, if these states didn't violate and change their didn't violate their election laws going around their legislature, um, the election results actually would have happened far quicker than they did. Right. Um, and so I think that, you know, we have a responsibility in Congress to uphold the Constitution always. Um, and if you turn a blind eye to the circumvention of election law, you only thing you're going to be doing is inviting it more of it in the future. That doesn't respect the the American people who live in these states. And frankly, it doesn't respect the American people who live in our great state of Florida, where we actually followed our election laws um, and actually had a pretty quick and resounding result on election night. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't a lot of acrimony about new ballots coming in, who's being able to watch and things of that nature. Yeah, yeah, so well said, Byron. And uh, I think we're kind of entering into a new. I think our, first of all, our founders did such a terrific job of anticipating uh, even the corruption that can occur by setting up a process that uh, gets to Congress to allow them to make the decision based on uh, state legislature. So, uh, am I correct? If, for example, you said the House will make the decision, uh, would make the decision on the president, the Senate on the vice president. Uh, now, is it? Uh, one vote for each state is that how would that would work or uh, uh, in other words we have what 23 uh, representatives in the state of Florida would the would you get together with your other representatives in Florida and uh, make a decision on who where the ballots would go well this is the part that's actually more interesting because you know it, historically if there is a tie and I not even historically constitutionally if there's a tie in the electoral college, like it came out 268, 268, and nobody can get to 270, mm -hmm. at that point, then in, in the House of Representatives, it's a vote. Each state delegation casts a vote on who would then be the president of the United States. Mm -hmm. In the current format, the current, the way our, it's, it's set up in Congress, even though the Democrats have a very slim majority, Republicans actually control more state delegations. Mm -hmm. So under that kind of a scenario, if there was a tie in electoral college, it's pretty easy to say that uh, Donald Trump will be reelected as president of the United States yeah. because the House would have to step in and make a decision because there was no majority in the electoral college or there wasn't, you know, there wasn't a majority over 270. In the Senate, what happens if, under a similar scenario is that the senators then vote for who's going to become vice president of the United States. That's how that works. What we're, what's happening here is if there essentially is found that um, not, if there's if it's found by the House of Representatives and by the Senate that there is significant um, significant irregularities or fraud, to lack of a better phrase, or or a complete uh, disregard for election law, which did occur in those states, that's beyond question that did occur. Mm -hmm. um, then at that point, um, I, that's part of what I'm saying. I'm not totally clear on what the, our next step is going to be. Uh, this would probably be a first in American history. I think it's important for Americans to understand and to be patient on this and not just get caught up with what media media stations are going to be saying. Right. Because the media, in part, is the problem. It, without question, the media was an active participant in the 2020 elections. Yeah. They wanted Donald Trump to lose. That is without question. Mm -hmm. um, they ignored stories. They promoted stories uh, that either weren't true or just ignoring the truth. Um, and so this is where we are. And so I think, you know, for, for a society, for our people, we have a responsibility to make sure that the law is followed. That's our duty in Congress to make sure that the law is followed and to enact those laws. We can't be a respecter of persons. We can't be a respecter of personalities. We can't be a respecter of news or news organizations or special interest groups or third party outside groups. We have to uphold the Constitution at all times when it's popular and when it's not popular. Absolutely. Yeah, so well said, Byron. And, and of course, I think if you found that the evidence was insufficient to show that uh, the votes were uh, not sufficient or the fraud was not sufficient to overturn uh, this uh, uh, President Trump,
then uh, you'd probably uh, say uh, put your thumbs down on it. But the point is that the, the, the amount of fraud is so significant and so clear and so documented that I don't think there's any choice but to, uh, to support President Trump for, for another term. Well, I mean, look, this one thing, and this, this is where language is important. Um, I'm not going to, I'm going to stop using the word fraud because the reason why I'm going to stop using the word fraud in, in some respects is because what I, what I don't know and what I still want to see and figure out is, is there enough quote unquote fraudulent ballots, meaning somebody through um, some sort of manipulation, whether it be uh, identity, you know, stealing somebody's identity, whatever the case might be, whether enough of those ballots to change election results in the states. The one thing is very clear is that if the fraud exists, and I'm not saying if, but you know, the fraud that does exist, it's it was allowed because state laws were not followed in these states. Right. So the real issue we have is that you have state laws that were not followed on purpose. Mm -hmm. And they used the they used a state of emergency as an excuse to change election law. That is not within the purview of any court or within the purview of any executive in any one of these states. That's just not the way um, emergency emergency orders work or emergency powers under a state of emergency. That's not the purpose. And so if you have the situation where you're saying the fraud was committed, it was allowed to be committed right. under, under quasi-legal means because election laws were violated in the first place in these states. So, so what the Democrats are trying to tell us is that, well, no, no, there is no fraud because these ballots came in and they were counted. What we're saying is, is that some of these ballots should have never even got in the door uh -huh. because you unilaterally violated election law in these states. Right. And because election law was violated, ballots that come in under the violation of law, those ballots are not legally, those are not legal ballots that should be counted because they actually infringe on and they disenfranchise the voters, not only in those states and in other states, who cast a legal ballot under election law as it should be followed and interpreted, not the not the runaround that yeah. unfortunately Democrat secretaries of states, the secretary of state in Georgia who's a Republican, who's you know, this guy whatever that that guy right there, I don't even get him. Yeah. Um. And and court systems in some of these states. So well said, Byron. So it, it just to see if I could summarize, I think basically what you're saying, there, the evidence is already there. We know the laws are violated in these states. And that in and of itself, irrespective of how the results may have come out, uh, makes the, the election in, invalid. They didn't follow the law on purpose. Would that be a fair summary? Oh, that's a very fair summary. I mean, look, let me, let's make it real, real simple. In football, this, you know, you can't hold downfield like you just can't hold mm -hmm. you can't have a receiver come over and just hold the cornerback and then the other receiver goes free and they throw a bomb and they score a touchdown you can't allow it yeah right let's just say for argument's sake it's two minutes left in the football game and the officials huddle together and say you know what we want to make sure that this game ends we don't want to go into overtime so just don't throw the flag on <laughs> offensive pass interference just don't call it <laughs> yeah. on the offensive holding and they just throw it out there, and guess what? And then the, the quarterback says, hey, go long. Just go ahead and hold the cornerback because they're not going to throw the flag. You can't change the rules in the middle of the game. Yeah. See, you If you're going to change that rule in football, the, 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 um, I forget the committee of the NFL. The, the, uh, the, I forget the name of the committee. That's irrelevant, though. They have to go and change that rule to the game right. before the season even happens so all the teams know how to operate under the new rule. The officials on that game can't just change it in the middle of the game because they want to hurry up and go yeah. home. They don't want to go to overtime. See, that's and this is the this is what I think a lot of Americans are missing. This is quite frankly what media people are ignoring uh -huh. is that the rules were changed in the eleventh hour. Yeah. In these states, and they used the pandemic as an excuse to do so. The pandemic does not give any state official or any state court the ability to change the constitution in a way elections are handled in the United States of America. Yeah, Byron, Period. that is so well said, and uh, I really appreciate your clarification of that. We are on, on uncharted waters right now, and it's going to be so interesting. And here, 
three days after you're sworn in, you're going to be in that uh, in that environment and dealing with that issue. So uh, I really appreciate your clear thinking. I hope you'll share it with the, your fellow Congress oh, people. It's the competition committee. That's what it is in the NFL. It's the competition yeah, right, committee. Right. And also, yeah. all those rules have to be approved by the Players Association, so, as I recall. So, again, Byron, I just genuinely appreciate uh, your commentary here on the show. And, uh, again, uh, Happy New Year to you and your family. And God bless you and the hard work that you got ahead of you. Listen, thanks for having me, Bob. Happy New Year to you. 2021, we're going to make it significantly better. Um, but honestly, to you, Bob, thank you for all your support. Can't wait to get started. Happy New Year, everybody. Okay, thank you so much, Byron. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I learned a lot. That Byron's interview was so interesting, wasn't it? Uh, I really appreciate all of our guests. I hope you tune in Monday. We're going to visit with Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com, Larry Reed, the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education, and Jim McDegg, former Barron's Washington bureau chief and author of several books. Always appreciate your feedback. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. If you enjoy the show, please pass that on to your friends and neighbors. I hope you make it a great New Year's Day a weekend here on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs>